listening to the Stories of Transformation podcast. I'm your host, Bakhtasha Hadi. In each episode, we will talk with some of the most inspiring and courageous individuals who share their unique stories about how they overcame hardships, learned their craft, and found their purpose. These conversations are meant to inform, entertain, and inspire. Okay, happy listening. Welcome to the Stories of Transformation podcast. My name is Bak Tashahadi, and in this episode, we're speaking with Wajahat Ali, who is a New York Times contributing op-ed writer, public speaker, recovering attorney, and tired dad of three kids. In our conversation, Wajahat shares his upbringing with us and what it was like to be the only Muslim kid in the room. Often forced to become the cultural ambassador of sorts post 9-11, how this experience led to his passion and ultimately his career in storytelling. He now teaches younger generations of minority backgrounds how to use their personal stories for social change. And on a more intimate note, Wajahat tells us about life and death experiences in his own life, one in which he almost died and one in which his daughter almost died. His daughter, two years old, was diagnosed with stage four liver cancer the day he had to step onto the stage at TED and give a talk about how people in developing countries should be having children. This conversation was riveting, emotional, and informative. Wajahat's unique blend of storytelling, humor, knowledge, and vulnerability make for a wonderful conversation filled with aha moments, laughter, and a new perspective. Without further ado, it's my pleasure to introduce Wajahat Ali. Wajahat Ali, how are you, sir? Bakhtash, I'm doing well. Thank you for uh, coming to my home and talking to me. You're welcome. It's my pleasure to be here. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy day to uh, have me here and talk about some important stuff. While drinking homemade chai. That's right, that you've made, and uh, it's actually quite tasty. Yeah, I like it. You, you, were, you were skeptical, but then once you drank, you're like, hey. This is wonderful. <laughs> That's wonderful. So, Waj, let's start this conversation by asking a simple question. Let's go for it. What's your story? There are many stories. Uh, uh, what story do you want to hear uh, today? What version of my story would you like to hear today? I think that's a really great way to frame it. Let's ask, how would you describe the thing that it is that you do? I am a person who is compelled to share and tell stories that are by us for everyone. By us, meaning a culturally specific tale through one perspective of a American Muslim son of Pakistani immigrants mm-hmm. for everyone very deliberately for people who do not look like us or think like us, a global multicultural audience. And it's not simply for the desire to entertain, although there's nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. It's always been to entertain and also, if possible, Mm -hmm. help build some bridges. And that's probably my mission statement. Okay, that's wonderful. So let's unpack all that. So you're interested in telling a story that isn't out there? Like what exactly are you trying to do? Yeah, so at the end of the day, I can really only tell my story with a type of authenticity and confidence um, because I've lived it. I can't tell your story, I'll be an interpreter or I'll be an observer or I'll be a journalist, but I've lived my story. And I tell everyone there's power in the personal narrative. I mean, think about it, if you're in an interview uh, you know, you go in, you memorize. There's a, there's a, there's a test. There's questions, but someone asks you your own story. It happens naturally, organically. Totally, everyone has a story. Totally. And there's a great quote by a poet, Muriel Rukeyser. She wrote, um, "The universe is not made of atoms. It's made of stories." 
that's the quote, beautiful quote. And, and studies have shown that human beings are the unique storytelling animals in existence, right? So we're bipedal, we have language, and we're the only ones that really tell stories. And for whatever reason, Allah, God, whatever you believe in, mm-hmm. has created us in a way that stories are in our DNA. That's how we like, that's just how we understand and perceive this thing called the world. Everything becomes a story. Well, yeah, what's beautiful what you're saying is story gives meaning to the things that we see and observe and experience. It gives meaning to life. That's right. It gives meaning to life, faith, religion, business, family, everything. Everything is a story. It's literally how we make sense of this chaos called the world. And so that's one. And so at the end of the day, I have a specific tale pertaining to me. I am Awajhatali. Also, I am realizing that I am a son of Pakistani immigrants mm-hmm. and I am a Muslim. And mm-hmm. in this country called America, which mm-hmm. is allegedly a multicultural booyah base or melting pot. I don't like melting pot because I don't like melting in anything. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, but you know that narrative, there's that grand narrative. Some would say a myth that like, ah, America, America, you know, anyone can make it. And sure. Everyone's equal. Sure. And yet you see your story and your people's story erased or marginalized or mm-hmm. mocked or ridiculed. And you mm-hmm. see us, especially after 9-11, emerge as the global villains. Mm-hmm. And then you think, well, that ain't my story. Mm-hmm. I grew up in the Bay Area. I'm, I'm the son of immigrants who made biryani, but still watched basketball and watched TV movies. And mm-hmm. I went to all boys Catholic school. Osama's not me. That's right. ISIS isn't me. That's right. And so why the F do they get to hijack the narrative of me and my communities. And so that's where I think you have a, a, it's a double-edged sword. The storytelling to entertain, to inform, but then the storytelling takes on a a healing, if you will, uh, a necessary educational purpose, especially when these stories are used and abused for hate, for foreign policies that are disastrous, for mockery and ridicule, right? Because think about it, it's easy to dehumanize an entire group of people if you don't know their story. That's right. You call them rats. Parasites. Rodents. That's right. Invaders. It's easy. Um, Mm. Bomb them. Mm. Afghans, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, it's all the same. It's not. You're Afghan. Who cares? Take out the Taliban. What about the kids? Whatever. And so this is, hmm. this is also the power of story that people don't realize. Not only just the personal, how it could transform someone. Like, you know, I, I do storytelling exercises. Mm-hmm. I just did one on two days ago. A friend asked me to come. You know, these are titans of the industry. It's like a YPO. He's like, these are like five of my friends. They're all millionaires. He's like, I have them for three hours, bro. I've done your storytelling session. They might not be into this. They might think it's lame. Sure. We just do it. Spent three hours with them. I'm just getting all the emails back. They're like, yo, I had no idea. I always knew, but I didn't really understand how powerful the story is. And they, I made them mine their life to share their story and connect their story to a mission statement and articulate it and think about it. And like, they made them really think that like, and that exercise is a transformational exercise for people to really dig deep and to understand that, oh my God, my story is powerful mm-hmm. and can make a difference in the world. And the final thing I'll say is the reason why people think this is, who am I? I'm nobody. Mm-hmm. I'm just a person living in the suburbs or in an apartment. Mm-hmm. I'm not on CNN like Wajahat. Mm-hmm. I'm not on New York Times. Mm-hmm. I'm not Oprah. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to live my life. It's fine. No one cares about my story. There's no beauty in my story. There's no gems in my story. There's no treasures in my people's story. The people who have been bombed and erased and reduced to ridicule. So I won't share it. 
And then you see someone share it and then you see the applause and then you go, oh my God. That was powerful. And there is beauty there. So that's fascinating. So what is the light that you shine on the darkness that allows people to see it? Like what do you do as a matter of storytelling mm. that, that you're able to kind of teach others to let them know that their identity matters, their their history matters, their people matters, There's there are gems in that journey. What is that you do or how is that you were able to explain that to people such that it clicks for them? So I hope I'm able to do it. But what I made the decision to do early on in my career is we are always told to flatten our stories and to take out the mirch and the masala and the saffron, uh, make it bland. Because there's an assumption if you take out all the specifics, mm -hmm. um, it will make it more quote unquote palatable to the mainstream. Mainstream is code word for the assumption of whiteness. Ethnic is code word for everybody else. So I was literally told throughout my career, uh, your stories are too ethnic for the mainstream. Take out the Urdu and the Arabic and the in the and this this the, the Muslimy stuff and the food and just you know make it chicken tikka masala bland with butter, right? And I decided early on, I'm like, nah, you lose the flavor. I'll give an example. One of my favorite movies is Godfather. If you've seen Godfather, mm -hmm. To this day, I have no idea what Michael is saying in the restaurant right before he takes the gun and kills uh, the corrupt police chief. There's a segment there for about two minutes where they speak in Sicilian without subtitles, right? Do you know what he's saying? No idea. Doesn't matter. It doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't. But it's rooted in an authentic community, a Sicilian immigrant community. It's literally Francis Ford Coppola putting his family's life there in a fictional story, which gives it a richness. The universal is found in the specific. And so I made the decision that I'm not going to shy away from it. I'm not going to hide it. I'm not going to be embarrassed by it. Yeah. And in my play, which I wrote, gosh, 17 years ago. Yeah. I mean, people forget this. Back then, what was very unsettling for many, even in our own communities, and I'll, and I'll explain that, was there was all the merch and the masala. Not everything was translated. It was very deliberately done for a global audience, but I didn't sit there and go, this is what this Urdu word means. It was just casual, honest. And at first, I remember some of the white audience members were unnerved. They're like, can you have a translation guide for the rest of us? Can you have a glossary of terms? Can you take out some of those words? Uh, this was in New York. And then some of the South Asian and Muslims, the deep fear was, and this is the power of colonization. Mm -hmm. will, they, will they like it? I don't think they'll like it. I don't think they'll understand Wajad. It's too much. And I'm like, you were in an audience. It was a diverse audience. They just gave it a standing ovation. They liked it. You liked it. But Wajahat, they might not like it. Who is the they? That's crazy. Who is the they? The they is the dominant, powerful group. The dominant narrative, which in America is white. And so for a mm. person of color or children of immigrants, mm. you just know Amrika means Gora, white. White. Yeah. Uh -huh. uh, and you have that inferiority complex. It just, it's there, whether we want to admit it or not. And even to the point where I get told this by white people, but I also get told this by, by my own people. Vajad, you were very eloquent on TV. You didn't get angry. And I'm like, well, have you ever seen me get angry? Oh, the stereotypes that you're the angry Pakistani? We, we, yeah, we, we internalize it, right? If you are taught your whole life, that beauty is a white woman with white features, not a black woman or a South Asian woman, mm. not curly hair, mm. uh, not braids. What happens, man? You would start to believe that. Yeah. What happens when you see movie after movie, TV show after TV show, and people who look like you and me are the goofball sidekick? 
the token the token brown guy. Yeah, who never get to kiss the girl, who never have um, abs, who aren't cool. You believe it. I'm, I, I'll be a sidekick. To the point where a couple of years ago, I challenged a bunch of Yale Muslims. They invited me to a Yale conference, right? Yeah. And we talked, and like, I just pivoted my entire speech. I was supposed to talk about storytelling. I talked about failure instead. And I talked about like how I kept failing in uh-huh. life and uh-huh. each failure led to a new discovery, which is how I made my way here. And I just had a feeling that these Yale kids had never failed in life or were terrified of failure, which had paralyzed them. And literally, and I use the word literally the way it's meant to be used, literally, people were crying. And she's like, you mean I could fail? You mean I don't have to, you know, like I can write poetry and, and, and I, I can make mistakes. And one guy was like, you know, you're right, man. I like have the highest grades. I work harder than everyone. And I just kind of seed the ground to like that mediocre white guy and I say, okay, sure. He should be the leader. And I think, you know, I'll be fine with, as being the vice president. And, he, and he's literally having this conversation with me. And he's like, why did I think that? Like, why not me? That's right. It's, it's so this is the power. It's that ingrained. It's that ingrained. And so if you can be the protagonist, not only of your own narrative, but the American narrative, how powerful is that? Because at the end of the day, what's most powerful is a kid sitting there saying, huh, why not me? Mm-hmm. Maybe I can do it. That waswasa, the whisper that comes in your head, like the Leonardo DiCaprio spinning the top like an inception. And that's what's transformative in my humble opinion. Now, that's wonderful. So let, there's so much to unpack there. So let's let's go back to- I'll stop talking. No, 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 of course not, man. Let's, let's, let's unpack that in the sense that, is it safe to say that you weren't always like this? I guess what I'm asking is, what was the watershed moment for you? Was it 9-11? Was it that 9-11 happened and all of a sudden people were expecting answers of you or expecting you'd have the answers for it's an entire an entire religion? Like what was the watershed moment for you? Yeah, no, there's so there's always pre-9-11 and post-9-11, but this for me mm-hmm. uh, was a journey in the making through uh, just birth. I was uh, born and raised in the Bay Area, California. I was five years old. My parents did not teach me any English, even though I was born here. I only spoke three words of English when they dropped me off at Child's Hideaway Preschool. I was very desi with lentil stains on my shirt, left-handed, which means I'm a jinn. Yeah, yeah. Oh my god! And they tried to they tried to change me. It didn't work. Oh my god! Because in our in our culture, man, our culture is left-handed. You can't do that. You only do one thing with the left hand. <laughs> <laughs> Better, you only do one thing with the left hand. So, and I was fat, and the the fat part is is big because I was shy, and we used to wear husky pants. So shy, fat, three words of English, and and you know I keep joking about this, but I was drawn in a very Muslim, Desi American way. Like I couldn't help but be anything else. Like so, you grow up and you go to school and you realize, yeah. what? How come you guys aren't speaking Urdu? What language are you guys speaking? How come no one else is eating dal and lentils? How come no one else is Muslim? You realize immediately you're the other. Immediately. It usually happens for people like us at school. They put me in ESL, English as a second language. And from a very early age, kind of unconsciously, Mm -hmm. I became that guy. Like people's Pakistani friend, people's Muslim friend. I was Wajahat Ali, a friend who also was this guy. A window or access to a world that they never knew. And... Maybe I took it upon myself or maybe I just did it naturally. Mm-hmm. I ended up being from an early age, this type of cultural ambassador uh, for all of our peoples. Like I must have given a dozen speeches by the time I've gone to high school on like anything about Islam in the Middle East. Because in high school, they're like, uh, hijab, wajah, do you want to talk about hijab? I'm like, okay, let me tell you. Or like, what's mm. happening in the Middle East? Uh, tell us about Pakistan or Islam. I was that guy. Yeah. And I took pride in it too. Like I, yeah. I enjoyed, I enjoy, it was very proactive instead of being reactive. Meaning the, the initial impetus for all this was I really enjoyed 
sharing stories with my friends. And I remember slowly but surely, I was so shy. The, the, the groundbreaking moment was in fifth grade where I was a really sick kid. I missed 35 days of school. They were about to kick me out. Mm-hmm. I had terrible allergies, just terrible. Okay. And then I finally got this hardcore regimen that finally put me back on track. I had to catch up. And the reason why I say this is a lot of people think, oh, he's on CNN, he's New York Times. He was like naturally talented. BS, bullshit. Shy, fat kid who couldn't say anything to anyone, right? Had a rich imagination, always hidden. Interesting. So my, my teacher, Miss Peterson, from Kentucky, made us do all these creative projects in fifth grade. And then when I finally got a little bit better, I started catching up and she said, you got to write a one-page story. Everyone's got to write a one-page fictional story. And this was when Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves was that. Great movie. Yeah, where Kevin Costner was uh, (laughs) uh, in English Robin Hood with an American accent, but there was Morgan Freeman. Yeah, that's right. Who was uh, Aziz. That's right. The first badass Muslim that we ever saw. Who prayed in a way we never prayed, but it doesn't matter. He was just a badass. So I remember that? 1990. Yeah. yeah. Oh my People, gosh, yeah. yeah. And we're like, Aziz, yeah. Uh, Azim, Azim. And I remember I'm gonna do, I said, I'm gonna write my version of Robin Hood. So yeah. I wrote a 10 page with Jahatali version of Robin Hood. And she read it and she gave me an A plus plus plus. And then she said, You have to recite this in front of the fifth grade homeroom class. And I was like, ah, I'm fat, please, no. And she goes, <laughs> Do it, fatty. And so uh, <laughs> And so I got up and I did it. And for the first time ever, they, they gave me an applause. They respected me. And I was like, wow, look at that. They actually liked my story. So you, fa- you, you experienced the power of storytelling right that day. Yeah, right. There. Actually, the first time I actually told a story was kindergarten. We were in line. I just yeah. remember this last week. Yeah. Me, Chris, and Mercedes, uh, we were the last in line to get lunch. And... Yeah. It was the first time I ever told the joke that I remember telling a joke. I started riffing on Dr. Pepper. I'm like, is it, I was like Seinfeld. I'm like, is it a doctor? Is it a pepper? Where's Dr. Salt? And all I remember was Mercedes yeah. who just started laughing. And, and I just remember I liked that feeling of making the girl laugh. Yeah. And that was the first time that it happened. And this was the first time I told my story in fifth grade. And then she made me, my teacher made me say the same story to the upperclassmen for the upcoming talent show. And I'm like, please don't make me. She goes, do it. And then the upperclassmen gave me an applause. And for the first time ever, I believed I might have unlocked a superpower. I had their attention. And that's when my father, who read the story, said, uh, this is a true story. He, he was reading chai, much like right now in the kitchen. Yeah. And my mom was in the kitchen and my father was like, Beta, this is a very good story. Yeah. You should think about becoming a writer. And my mom runs out and she goes, but first become a doctor. Of course. It's <laughs> <laughs> a true story. Yeah, you only have but, two options, engineer, the, doctor, right? So, yeah. No, but, but the reason why that was important before the 9-11 thing is that, that sets me up my entire life. Improv comedy in college, storytelling, writing, making movies with my friends, just for fun. That's it. Like, it was the joy of it. Um, but also being a Muslim guy, a Pakistani guy, who was willing and able to share the story. Yeah, yeah. And then 9-11 happens. So, so, so all that's like a primer for you to be essentially on this, in, this, in this place, on this platform where you're then catapulted into the space where there you can you essentially express what you need to but, express. But, but it's all done not with a Machiavellian strategy. You know, it's not like, it's ah, all, It was organic. Organic. And 9-11 happens. I'm 20 years old, about to turn 21, a senior at UC Berkeley, undeclared major. Wow. Yep. I joined the Muslim Student Association. I'm on the board, so I'm a leader from the Muslim Student Association. Yeah. FML. I should have joined the Indian Student Association. 
9-11 happens, UC Berkeley, the, the hub of political activism and yeah. protests. Yeah. And now everyone's saying, all right, lead. Hijabis are terrified. We're getting hate mail. Press is descending. There's uh, anti-war protests before the war happens because Berkeley knew what was up. And next thing you know, I'm in front of 300 people giving a speech and I'm ask, I'm wondering and asking myself, how did I get here mm -hmm. when 10 minutes ago I was at the back? What am I even saying? And then next thing you know, I get quoted in Fox News and Bill wow. O'Reilly yeah, for saying something. And then without any training, me and Basim Al-Kara, uh, you know, we're asked to do an interview. And I'm like 21 years, I'm 20 years old, right? And it's yeah. like a right-wing radio show, but the producer says, oh, we'll be fair. I'm like, okay, well, if you'll be fair. You believe them. Yeah. Uh, we'll get two two audience questions for you, two audience questions against you, right? And so then mm -hmm. interview starts and boom, the host just launches into me. I keep my cool. Yeah. Bassem loses it. And Bassem to this day, like says, well, child, man, you kept your cool. I go back and cringe when I listen to that. He's like like 21 years old. What is, you know, now he's like, you know, a leader and, you know, he's polished. But it was becoming an accidental activist. I always call 9-11 a baptism by fire for the rest of us. And it was literally... Now you are the representative, the cultural ambassador. Right. You have to be the walking Wikipedia entry on the drop of a dime and an expert on everything. Islam, Quran, Hakeem Olajuwon, Bollywood, you know, Sharia. Uh, and if you make a mistake or if you say something wrong, not only are you effed, you've effed Muslims and you've effed Islam because they will punish all of your people for your sins. And you have to engage in the endless condemnathons, condemning violent acts done by violent people you've never met in your entire life. And the double standard is insane, but that's how it is. And no matter how perfect you are, mm -hmm. your patriotism mm -hmm. is always suspect. It's true. It's like, uh, that resonates so much with me. I, uh, when 9-11 happened, I was in, um, I'd started college. First person in my family to go to school. And nine days after uh, I started school, 9-11 happened. Oh, man. And so I was really curious about that experience. Watch. And you're Afghan. And I'm Afghan. And I went to a, a, a fairly homogenous school where everybody was, uh, where there wasn't that much flavor and diversity. What city? A uh, small little town in Pennsylvania called Seelands Grove. I went to a school called Susquehanna University. Mm -hmm. Rust Belt. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, the mountains of Pennsylvania. Yeah. And so uh, great little school, great little liberal school. But, um, you know, I was the only Afghan, only Muslim on campus. And it happened. And I just remember having to, like you, have to have all the answers when in fact I didn't know the answers except my community expected that of me. Mm. And so all of a sudden you are this cultural ambassador. And so I made it to Fox News too. You know, people interviewed me and my dad and we'd have to have panel discussions and people are asking us, who are these Taliban people and what is their notion of Islam? And, uh, you know, do you know Al-Qaeda and what are they like? And mm. all these major assumptions that we just thought to ourselves, people don't know what they don't know sincerely like this far off place afghanistan al-qaeda hitting the united states and all of a sudden the world literally turned upside down yeah and uh, i think for many 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 muslim americans from our region of the world you know we are in places where our trajectory is going to be on the path to medicine or on the path to engineering but this was really a moment where we thought to ourselves who do i want to become and what is the world expecting of me it's it's a good point because that baptism by fire, and I was I was part of that group, right? That was about to graduate and go to um, grad school, or yeah. law school. There was a shift, and you see the our generation in particular, a lot of people abandoning 
those traditional careers and going into storytelling. Totally. You saw stand-up comedy, like mainstream in Muslim circles for the first time. People forget that. You see people going into TV. You see people trying for journalism. You see more brown, black faces. Um, That's right. Yeah. And so people say, oh, it's just coincidence. Nope. If you look at America, usually artists and art, it's, it's produced by these powerful emotions, usually love, but also pain. And if you see some of the greatest cultural creators in America, I would say it's African-Americans and Jews and just look at their histories. That's right. Right. And so when you are erased and snuffed out and killed, uh, literally and figuratively, sometimes the best way and only way to fight back and fight forward is through your stories, through culture. And I remember 9-11 happened and I was also doing this, but my side job was I was a student and I was in a short story writing class and Ishmael Reed, who was mm -hmm. a MacArthur genius winner, like a Titan, Amazing. was my, was my teacher, African-American. And he takes me aside and he says, don't waste your time on short stories. I actually think dialogue and characters are your strength. I think you, there's a playwright in you and look, I've been watching the news. I see what's been happening Take it from me, I'm a black man. We've been going through this for 400 years. They're going to haze you for a long time. Uh -huh. But the way some of us fight back is through art and stories. So I want you to write a story. Mm -hmm. What are you again? I said, uh, I don't know, undeclared. He goes, no, no, you're ethnicity. He's like, <laughs> he's like, he's like, you're, he's like Indian, no, Pakistani, Pakistani, Muslim. Yeah. So you ever read those American stories, like the American plays, like I don't know, Long Day's Journey in a Night or Death of a Salesman or Fences? I'm like, yeah. He goes, yeah. write me something like that but about a Pakistani Muslim family. Yeah. You have two months, give me 20 pages or you fail. All right, bye. Sincerely, that was the dialogue. Yep. And I'm like, what the, f what? And so he says, yeah, don't waste your time in my class. I'll, you know, just come by whenever you want, but I don't care. Just write the play instead. And so I started writing 20 pages of the play and the you'll appreciate this as a son of immigrants. Uh, at that time, there was actually bookstores. So there was Borders and Barnes. And so I went borders there. And, and Barnes. Yeah, remember that? <laughs> I went there and asked them to return policy. And they said like, yeah, you can write, you can get anything as long as you return in good condition within like 11 days. So I took my ED money. Uh, and back then we used to get ED money uh, during uh, Ramadan. Yeah. And I literally bought two plays. I just went to the drama section. So, okay, what's a new play? These two, great. Bought two plays, read them in two weeks, returned them, got two more plays. I just did it for like a month. I don't know what the hell I was doing. Yeah. So I read a bunch of these plays. Yeah. And the first thing they did was created characters of three generations, six characters yeah. of a Pakistani Muslim family. And then I wrote this story. Yeah. And the story ended up becoming Domestic Crusaders, which I started for my 21st birthday as a senior. I finished it as a 23rd birthday present for myself after graduating. And my teacher, Ishmael Reed, then was the guy who kept encouraging me. And his partner, Carla Blank, ended up becoming the dramaturg and the director of the play. And everything comes full circle, starting from your first fundamental question. Because as things were falling apart, both right. in my personal life and also for us, I mean, people forget, Post Island was crazy. I mean, Dixie Chicks were the enemy of the people. Dixie Chicks are like the whitest people on earth. And the sin of Natalie Maines, the lead singer of Dixie Chicks, was just this. I'm embarrassed that George W. Bush is from Texas. Bye, y'all. That's all she said. And they took tractors over their CDs. There was something called CDs Children back in the day. So in this climate, I wrote Domestic Crusaders, and a lot of my friends, both Muslims and those who were not Muslim, were like, do you really want to write a play this blunt in this climate? Mm -hmm. In 2003, where America had gone freaking nuts. And I felt like, no, this is exactly the story I want to tell right now. And had 9-11 not happened, and I think had 
our journey as these children of immigrants not happened, mm-hmm. that play would have never been created, right? Everything is, you, you, now you're asking me, I think I look at it and like, it, it all makes sense. In retrospect, yeah. Yeah, you can connect the dots. Totally. Uh, Waj, that's fascinating. So this was in 2003. The United States goes in Afghanistan, invades, clears out the Taliban, declares victory. At this point, 2003. Mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. At this point, the United States is essentially about to step foot in Iraq, 2003, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this was a very turbulent time for our country at that point. And anybody who was criticizing George Bush at that time was seen as somebody who wasn't loyal to America or patriotic enough. So nobody would. Yeah, nobody would. I mean, there was a failure of journalism to the point now where many journalists conceded. Uh, journalists were embedded. Uh, it was top-down information. Whatever uh, the administration said was parroted. Exactly what you said. Nobody wanted to be seen as being unpatriotic. Uh, I'm from Fremont, as you know, which has mm-hmm. one of the largest Afghan populations. Mm-hmm. Afghans, the poor Afghans in Fremont, man. You went to down, uh, we call it Little Kabul out of love. You go down Fremont Boulevard. It's all these shops and restaurants, uh, you know, uh, run by Afghans, Pakistanis, everyone had flags. American flags. Not just one flag. Flags. It's like seven flags. You used to walk out of your house with like 18 flags. Um, and it wasn't because you were a sellout or an Uncle Thomas, because you didn't want to get, freaking get hazed. Um, you That's know, absolutely true. Yeah, Balbir Singh, a poor Sikh man, not even a Muslim, was the first victim of a hate crime after 9-11. A gas station owner in Meza, Arizona, shot and killed because... You all brought down the towers, this poor Sikh man. So it wasn't just those who were Muslim, it's anyone who looked Muslimy. That's totally true. And people forget. And to the point where Clear Channel, which, you know, is this powerful company that uh, runs a lot of uh, radio channels, right? They, they, people forget this, man. They put out all these songs they could not play after 9-11. And it was the entire Rage Against the Machine catalog. And you know what other song was there? Imagine by John Lennon. You're joking. Yeah, go 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 research this. People forget. Like so even there was like mass censorship. Oh my and gosh. and George Bush's ratings at that time were in the high nineties. Rudy Giuliani was New York's mayor. Look at him now. Yeah. Right? And so he was he was a piece of shit then, he's a piece of shit now, right? But 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 back then in the jingoistic post uh 9-11 war fever, that's it. Rah rah rah. Um and then Bush wins again. I knew he'd win. I don't know why people were shocked. I knew he'd win. And then in the second term, mm-hmm. the poop hits the fan. Mm-hmm. We're like, wait a second. Uh, what's happening in Iraq? Oh, with uh, WMD. Yeah. Like, wait yep. a second. Mm-hmm. Are we really winning? I thought it was mission accomplished. Mm-hmm. Wait a second. There's thousands of dead soldiers mm-hmm. and no one even talks about the PTSD. They talk about the 4,000 soldiers, but the PTSD that effed up these men and women. We're dealing with it now. I mean, there are more people that have died as a result of those wars in America than actually in combat. It's astonishing. Yeah, no, astonishing. And, 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 and you've been through it. You know. Yeah, I mean, it makes perfect sense. And then the economy crashes. That's and right. then people are like, remember in Fahrenheit? Um, 9-11. 9-11 came out. People are like, oh, my God. All these lies. And remember that Iraqi reporter throws his shoe at George W. That's Bush? Right. That's right. All the lies. Rumsfeld and uh, Wolfowitz and mm-hmm. Cheney. And then 2007 and 2008, the crash. Mm-hmm. And so we come down from our wargasm. Oh my gosh, that's so, that's so accurate. Gosh. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that's and, so accurate. And then, and then what happens is, is uh, chaos. And then, so that's, and, then, and then we're like, hey, maybe let's give this black guy a shot. Mm-hmm. Obama. That's right. Uh, and now we're at the situation where we're like, all right, we're going to punish you for giving this black guy a shot. Yeah, that's what's happening politically. That's really interesting how you put that. Um, so let, let's fold this back into this idea of, of, of the Muslim narrative of the immigrant story in America. So as it pertains to uh, this idea of Islamophobia, so right, so this happens 9-11. Anybody who represented Islam in any 
shape, form, or fashion, anything that was Muslimi is what, is, is what you said. Has that sense been exaggerated? Or like, what's the tra trajectory of Islamophobia since 9-11 to this day? Is it, has it been increasing more and more and more and mm. more and more? Like, what, how, do you, how do you explain what's going on? Yeah, so it's been existing uh, for a thousand years, I would say. And I'll do a very quick DeLorean. Uh, back to the, back, back to the, the future, future. Uh, past to the present, you know. And what I mean by that is the following, you know, when it comes to something called the West uh, versus this thing called the East, like who is the West and who is the East? What is the West and what is Islam, right? And so after 9-11, it was like, they hate us. And I'm like, who's they and who's us? Uh, and we are both us and them, if you think about it, as Muslim Americans. But this really goes back to the Crusades, where in 1095, Pope Urban II declares like a holy war against the Muslim invaders. Before then, Muslims and Christians relatively had pretty good relations. But you see how the foreign policy of the day uh, transforms the stories in popular culture. So after 1095 and after the Crusades, you see like in the, in the 12th century, this poem, The Song of Roland, which is an epic historical poem still taught to this day in English classes in America, mm -hmm. which talks about how Charlemagne routed the, the Muslim hordes, right? But what really happened in history was not, it was not a Muslim horde. It was Christians. Uh -huh. It was Christian Basques. But the enemy became Muslims in that poem. You see that? You fast forward to the Renaissance and Dante. We read Dante to this day in uh, you know, Divine Comedy. Who does he meet in hell? Getting tortured. Prophet Muhammad and Hazrat Ali, uh -huh. right? You fast forward to Europe, Voltaire, the enlightened philosopher writes a play, the fanaticism of the Prophet Muhammad. You see these portraits uh, and photos depicting Muslims and Jews. You just go check it out last, uh, you know, thousand years. Not as human as these types of like bulbous, purple, black, blue, half demon, half animal men. Right? Think mm -hmm. about it. Literal dehumanization. Literally, yeah. Uh, and then you fast forward to the 20th century. And what was the profound instrument of change vis-a-vis -vis pop culture and information and storytelling? The camera. That's right. The movies. Even in the beginning of the movies, 1920s, silent movies, Rudolph Valentino, the sheik, mm. the Arab sheik, where he's romantic and like, you know, amorous. Exotic. Exotic. But... All the brown men behind them are like these barbarian hordes and the way they treat their women, right? Right. And then you get to the 70s. Mm -hmm. Oil embargo. That's right. Saudi Arabia. And now you see cartoons of Saudis as fat, beady-eyed, hooked noses, just like the Jews were in the 30s and 40s, even now. 79 happens. Ayatollah Khomeini. Comes back, right? Islamic revolution, right? Who is the number one villain in WWF? WWF, like the wrestling? Yeah. It wasn't Andre the Giant? No, uh, close. Iron Sheikh. Oh my gosh. Coinciding right. with the rise of Khomeini and the Islamic threat. Yeah. And his, um, and oh, his finishing curious. move was Camel Clutch. And then when you and I were growing up in the 80s, yeah. we loved all these movies where literally the hero, the white hero, is just killing swaths of our people. Yeah, like, like Chuck, Chuck Norris. Yeah. We're like, yeah, Chuck Norris, just go kill them all. Delta Force, Delta like, Force. racist SF. Even yeah. and Back to the Future, I used DeLorean, Marty McFly, and Doc. Who does Doc get killed by randomly? Weren't they Algerians? 
Libyan terrorists. Libyan terrorists. Like so casual. Remember that? Like he's in the Nordstrom shop, uh, that's, shopping uh, that's bar, right. in the parking lot. And all of a sudden these like Libyan terrorists with like a rocket come and just kill him. That's right. Yeah, Cause he steals their plutonium or something to make for the delivery. Right. And the reason, flux capacitor. Yeah, the, flux, the reason why I'm mentioning all this is to answer your question, this was the representation of our people. We were flattened, we were erased, we were villainized. And so it was always this brown threat in the Middle East. That threat, that narrative, that pop cultural representation became solidified as this thing called Islam after 9-11. It was us mm-hmm. versus them. Mm-hmm. The West versus Islam. It became a civilizational conflict. And after 9-11, the merchants of hate were able to use all this under the guise of national security mm-hmm. to promote these conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. Sharia is a threat to America. You can't trust Muslims. The radical Muslim brotherhood has infiltrated. Barack Hussein Obama is a Muslim. Yeah, even if they are Muslim, they say they don't or they're, they're, they're like... You can't trust them. They're a fifth column. Yeah, they're, 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 they're implementing what's known as taqiyya, right? Yeah, which sounds like a taco. <laughs> like no Muslim knows what taqiyya is, right? That's but right. He, exactly. And so That's and then right. Barack Hussein Obama comes and how do they tag him? Foreigner, ethnic, birth certificate, Muslim. Middle names, Hussein. There you go. That's right. That's and right. so that's how Islamophobia how interesting. has been normalized, especially with the Trump administration, where literally one of the major talking points for him in 2016 was the Muslim ban. Yeah. Well, nonetheless, I mean, you're doing work all over the place, reading, writing, speaking to essentially address what you just unpacked for us. That's yeah. what you're doing now with your time. I mean, yes and no, right? Like I had no desire to do this. Uh, I remember it was 2011. Uh, we're in DC right now, Virginia. And um, there's a think tank center for American progress. And this was 2012, right before Obama was running uh, for reelection. Yeah. And they were like, dude, where is this coming from? Like Sharia and Takia and all this crap. So can you do a think tank report, an investigative report, just tracing it? Right. It was supposed to be 20 pages. And it ended up being 140 pages called Fear Incorporated the roots of the Islamophobia network in America, where um, I was the lead author and we traced the funding, the think tanks, the politicians, the grassroots groups, the media outlets that literally created, uh, funded and mainstreamed these talking points, which are now literally the talking points and policies of Stephen Miller and Steve Bannon and Donald Trump. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And every single person that we mentioned in their report in 2011 is now tied to in some way to the Trump administration in 2011. 20. And so I did that and I said, okay, I'll move on in life. Cause I wanted to like, you know, I wrote a play and I, I made movies with my friends and I thought I could just write novels and stuff. But yeah. a role that I took and a role that has been assigned to me, a role is this guy who helps people connect the dots to explain where this Islamophobia is coming from, how it's tied to racism, how it actually connects to white supremacy, how it's going to impact all of us, how there's merchants of hate. Mm-hmm. And that was one thing which has been frustrating because I feel like I've been a brown Cassandra since 2011. I've been warning people. I'm like, it's going to get globalized. It's going to get mainstream. They're going to intersect. They're going to go after immigrants. It's like, they're going to go after Sikhs. It's like, it's, you guys don't know what's happening. You guys don't know what's happening. It's the death rattle of white supremacy. And then Trump happens. And the one positive in a weird way is all the people who ignored me, ignored us, people like us, because Trump is so egregious in his hate, they're like, hey, Darkie, you're on to something. <laughs> you want to come talk to us about what the problem is? Let's, let's talk about this white nationalism thing. And so, as you know, sometimes it takes a tragedy for us to wake up 
and pay witness to the chaos that was always under our nose. And voila, here we are. Isn't that the truth? Wash, I'd like to switch it up here and talk about something a little different here. You did a TED Talk. Yes. Where you spoke about, uh, where you made the case for having children. Yes. Because the demographic problem in the United States and, and in the West is that countries like the United States, Germany, Norway, you name the country, people are having less and less and less kids. China. Right, yeah. China. And so one, why did you decide to have that as a TED Talk versus all the stuff that we just discussed? Why did you, why did you do that? Yeah, so that, that's a good question. I remember I got asked the last second by the TED folks if I wanted to pitch them. And she told me, Cindy told me, she goes, listen, like, you want, you want to do it? I said, sure. She goes, all right, you got to give me an idea, like, by the end of the afternoon today. And I'm like, okay, I got one. Um, and there was just some, this was just lingering in my mind. This, I thought it would be provocative, the case for having kids, because I'm a father. Mm-hmm. Uh, at that time, I had two kids. Mm-hmm. And we didn't know Sarah, my wife, was going to be pregnant a couple months later. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was just reading about the fact that China is, like, freaking out about not having enough people. Uh, the one-child policy uh, backfired uh, in a major way. Mm-hmm. And they were literally doing propaganda for people to have kids. Japan produces more baby diapers than it has babies. Isn't that amazing? So aren't they producing like more diapers for elderly people than yes. they are for babies? Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah. That's exactly That's what you it. said. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and in Europe, uh, especially across the EU, mm-hmm. uh, same problem. United States, same problem. And so I thought, huh, why is this happening? Mm-hmm. And as a father who made the decision to have kids, even though some people are not having kids, you know, due to income inequality and climate change, you know, what, what, what reasoning can I give to myself for having kids, right? Is it the responsible thing to do? So I just thought, let me tease this out. And so I pitched it. And she's like, oh, we, we don't have anything like that. And coincidentally, around the time my TED Talk was coming out, like article after article after article, like that week, that week before, it just yeah. came out. Like specifically, I remember it was like last year, the like huge New York Times front page article about like lowest birth rates in America in years, right? 2017 was the lowest year you yeah, said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so there's something called the TFR, uh, the total fertility rate, okay? If the total fertility rate is at 2.1, meaning... That's 2.1 average kids that a woman has. Basically, a society's population remains stable. No net growth, no net loss. You need at least 2.1. That's like the magic number. If it goes below 2.1, you're losing people. If it goes above 2.1, obviously you have overpopulation, right? And so in Europe, it's like 1.5, man. In America, it's like 1.7, 1.8. In some other countries, like 1.2, 1.3. And so people in China are mapping this out and they're like, this is going to be a catastrophe for our country. And the question then is, why aren't people having kids? And the reason is, especially in America, we can't afford to have kids. It's expensive. Yeah. I mean, it, it, this country, in Amer- United States of America, the most powerful country, the most wealthy country in the world, costs thousands of dollars to have a child. So if you don't have insurance, it's, it's astronomical. It's, what did you say, $32,000 yeah. just to have a kid without yeah. any problems? Without any problems. Isn't it amazing? And then think about childcare cost about thirty to 40000 if you're both working parents. And look at the infant mortality rate for the United States of America compared to other countries. It's, it's ridiculous. And so a lot of people are opting out, not because they don't want to have kids, because they're like, dude, how the F can I afford, afford it? Them, right? How can I afford it? And then also we have climate change. And a study came out that said having one less child actually will help uh, decrease climate change, right? And then, so the problem is this, people say, well, Jihad, how dare you 
tell us to have kids while we have overpopulation, why there's climate change. And I acknowledge that right up front in the TED Talk. Mm -hmm. I said, yes, we have problems with, uh, you know, high fertility rates in African countries. Mm -hmm. Yes, we have some problems elsewhere. Mm -hmm. But what do you say to Europe? What do you say to the United States of America? What do you say to China? In developed countries, why are we having this problem? And the TED Talk was a Trojan horse vehicle for me to talk about this crisis, but also propose progressive pronatal policies. Which are? Which are affordable childcare. Right. Which are, in my opinion, universal healthcare. Uh, which are, you know- Parental leave. Parental leave. We're the only industrialized advanced country in the world that does not require or mandate paid parental leave. In the United States of America, it is literally up to the employer whether or not they want to do it. Absolutely ludicrous. Afghanistan has a better policy. <laughs> no, it does, really. Afghanistan has a better policy. And so think about it. Yeah. Hey, mom, go give birth. If you're lucky, you'll have insurance. It won't cost that much. If you don't, it'll cost thousands of dollars. You'll probably go bankrupt. Then it's up to your employer whether or not if he wants to give you any time off or whether or not he wants to even pay you. Suppose he doesn't. Get your ass back to work. And oh, by the way, we care about our women and our children. So what's really curious about your talk, Waj, is that as you're giving your talk, and you're really passionate about it now, and you were really clear and crisp until the very end of the talk, and you made it personal. And you made it personal because uh, your daughter, Naseba, mm. um, was diagnosed with stage four cancer, and your wife told you about it that day? So what had happened was I'd, yeah. le I'd left for TED. It's a whole week in Vancouver. Yeah. I had left. I played with my daughter. She was two at the time, going to turn three, you know, a couple months later. Um, she was fine. I played double on her stomach like all dads do. No problem. I go to Vancouver. I'm there Sunday. And on Monday, like two days later, I get this call from my wife in the morning. She's crying. My wife never cries. I'm like, what's wrong? It's like 7 a.m. your time. What's happening? Yeah. She goes, you know, I, I took Nuseba to the emergency. I'm like, what happened? She goes, you know, she had this bump on her stomach. I'm like, she eats something? She goes, that's what I thought. But like my wife's a doctor. She goes, my spidey sense said, just to be safe, take her. And then I was just waiting in the waiting room. And then I was expecting maybe she ate something. It was gas. And the doctor said, no, there's just these bumps and lesions over the liver. And my wife, who's a doctor, said, that's not a good sign. I think that's cancer. I'm like, what, what the F do you mean? Cancer? What? I just left her. What bump? What, what are you talking about? And I was in the hotel. And then the, the whole thing comes, becomes like, should I come back? Should I stay? Should I come back? Should I stay? What should I do? And she says, I don't know. Let's wait. Let's just wait. Let's see what's going to happen. And so my mom, thank God, was here. She was visiting. So that gave me some peace. And then I believe my speech was a three days later on Thursday. Mm -hmm. And in the morning, my wife calls and she kind of was like giving me an advance warning about this. Like, mm -hmm. that's, it's cancer. Trust me, it's cancer. It's cancer. Mm -hmm. and he, but you just want to, like, you still say maybe it's something else, right? Even, Always. You know? Always. Even though my wife's like, I'm a doctor, just trust me. And then and the, the official medical diagnosis was stage four liver cancer. Oh my God, that's yeah. devastating. Yeah, I don't even know what the hell stage four is, right? Like, I'm like, is that a good stage? It's all relative. There's no good stages, right? But you want like, is that the, is it, that's the stage you want to have? And they're like, no, that means that- There's only one more stage after that. Yeah, and there, that means that for, for Nuseba, it was all over her liver. And then they had found a, a spot in her lung. So meaning that it had moved. Uh, metastasized and for liver cancer you hope that it's on like one lobe or there's one nodule you can excise it but when yeah. it's over the entire liver it's gone so 
a few hours after that, I had to give my talk. And I said, how can I come here in front of the world and make the case for having kids and say with a straight face without processing or, or, or still making the case with the knowledge that a child that I have brought into this world has stage four cancer. And I thought it would be disingenuous and hypocritical of me to not include that. And so I take them on this arc where I feel I make a very compelling, persuasive argument mm. uh, for the case for having kids in these industrialized countries mm-hmm. uh, and the case for these pronatal policies to help it get to 2.1. Uh, and I said, by the way, I say all this knowing full well that I, my daughter is struggling for her life and I've brought a girl into this world and now has stage four cancer. And then who would have thought that uh, it just kind of floored the audience. It did. More so than me. Like like the entire, because for those of you who don't know Ted, like yes, there's that huge audience, but it kind of takes over the entire conference room. So they have screens and there's like hundreds of people even like outside of the auditorium. Oh, yeah. So people told me like everyone stopped. Like everyone, still. Because wow. they have the screens outside, right? Yeah, yeah. And so people, it's just like a gut punch. And, and you, there were a lot of parents there. And so it just transformed the entire experience for me. And then so many people were just kind and they were like rooting for her. And, and like, I think it made the case for a lot of people. And some people came up to me and said, you know, I'm not going to have kids, but I understand why people would have kids. But it, it kind of sharing the story of Nuseba was itself a difficult decision. You never want to overshare. You want to be protective about your kid's privacy. You have this, you don't know if she's going to survive or live. You don't want to exploit your kid's uh, mm-hmm. suffering. Mm-hmm. But the decision to share her story and her journey, mm-hmm. stage four cancer, chemotherapy, mm-hmm. liver transplant, post-transplant, has been a transformative experience for us, but also for so many people. Because so many people are invested in this little girl. Mm-hmm. So many people want to help. So many people prayed. So many people signed up to be a liver donor. So many people had no idea, this is the educational aspect of storytelling, that the liver grows back, that you can be a liver donor. I've gone to school. I had no idea you can like give a piece of your liver and it grows back. People didn't even, like, there's one educated person came up to me. He says, I didn't even know babies could get cancer. Like what the, f-? Yeah. you know? And so people gave money to cancer research. So, through Nuseba's story, our family story, in some small way, we hope we have brought some awareness to this insane cancer that affects only 1% of kids, hepatoblastoma. And we hope that, inshallah, you know, people sign up to be live living donors. And my mom said this, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. She said, Beta, you know, I'm thinking about this, just the way things work out. If you were a corporate lawyer, because I was also a lawyer, right? I'm a licensed attorney. I haven't practiced many years. But she was, you know, I was thinking, if you were actually a corporate attorney and you didn't go into this writing field, maybe Nuseba wouldn't be alive because her story wouldn't have gone out. You wouldn't have the social media profile. CNN wouldn't have shared it. You wouldn't have gone all these liver, um, potential liver donors. Mm-hmm. And she goes to think about it. Maybe Allah made you into a writer so you could share the story. And the story then helped inspire people to try to help Nuseba. Not only helped your daughter, but also helped people feel like they were needed. You know, it's really curious about your story and it's beautiful how you did it. And it's wonderful how you became so vulnerable on stage. How did it feel to be that vulnerable? See, that's a good question. 
I am an old school Spartan man, unfortunately, and I don't recommend it. And what I mean by that is my wife is the emotionally evolved normal human being who like cries like once a week, which is a normal thing to do. And especially, you know, believe it or not in Islam, uh, the, the Sufi saints, the scholars and the sheikhs, they weep too. And they say it, it reflects a soft, sensitive, beautiful heart, right? It, it's, it's like seen as a, a sense of strength and masculinity. Uh, a sense of like having a, being like a warrior poet. Type yeah. Person. Yeah. It's like you're, yes. You, love. Yeah. Love for Allah, love for the prophet, love, uh, love, love for humanity. It, like you see these shayukh cry. Yeah. And it, like in our, in, in our tradition, we kind of like don't flinch, but at the same time, this this kind of really unhealthy model of masculinity, both mm. in America and even in our you know parents' countries, is like you, you never cry, never ever. You don't share your feelings. You never cry. Uh, depression is for white people. Uh, therapy is for white people. Happiness is also not for us. Yeah, joy. Yeah, even yeah, <laughs> even joy. Sincerely. Yeah, uh, man up and, and just shove it, shove it deep, deep down, and somehow you'll be normal. <laughs> which you know and so i i don't share that extreme but for whatever reason i'm a guy who just does not cry or does not f freak out but you almost did on stage you almost did. maybe you you See, got soft you got really soft i mean i don't know i couldn't help it it's like you're, you're talking about your, your daughter so yeah, i made the decision you make the decision and i made the decision and then i said you know for the sake for nuseba uh, that's what I said before going on stage. Oh my God. Because I said, I'll do it from Nuseba. Because maybe, just maybe somehow, like I can honor her. Maybe it'll be like a prayer. Like who knows? Like, Just share. See yeah, what share. Happens. Just share. See what happens. And so, yeah. and so, and plus yeah, any dad, like, you know, I, I mean, come on, I'm not a, I'm not a man of granite, but uh, it's like you're dealing with your two-year-old daughter who freaking has to battle for her life. And it was so bad at that time, to be honest. So now we're sitting here, it's almost going to be February, but... April, we didn't know if she'd survive April because this poor girl had to go through every single setback possible. Yeah. And 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 her chemo was delayed. Yeah, God. So I have to ask you, man, um, for those in the audience that's Naseba like screaming in the background, which yeah, is yeah, wonderful. Yeah. She's like the, the wonderful background music. <laughs> yeah, she is she's a diva right now. She yeah. was really happy, but then mom, I'm sure mom didn't give her something. She's like, Mama. I don't know if you guys could hear it, but you guys could. That's Nuseba in the background. She's a she's a. Gem. So that's good. We want her screaming and yelling and happy and joyful. Yeah, yeah. So I have to ask you, like, as a as a parent, uh, you know, a parent's worst nightmare is having their child go before them. Like mm. these thoughts must have crossed your mind. Yeah, yeah. So I'm curious to know, uh, Waj, what have you learned about life through this process? I mean, your daughter, thank God, now is healed and she's she's, she's on the path. She's on the path. She rang the bell. She's cancer free. She, we're trying to establish a new normal. It'll never be really normal, but alhamdulillah, compared to where she was April, man, come on. You know, she has a new liver in her. Yeah. She's cancer free. The NG tube's gone. You saw her. She's yeah. looking good. She looks fantastic. So, I mean, it's all win. But, you know, it's, it's a good question. I think about mortality a lot and life a lot mm -hmm. you know I, I i without getting too much into details i mean not because i i don't mind sharing it but just to in interest of time and, and answering a question mm -hmm. i had a near-death experience uh eight years ago i was eight years ago eight years ago i was 31 mm -hmm. and very healthy i thought i was skinnier than i am now 15 pounds i went to the gym elliptical just want to do 25 minute quick you know just get a little bit of sweat 
passed out. My heart rate went to 215, stayed there. I had uh, this condition. It was like essentially supraventricular tachycardia, right? Where like your, it's irregular heartbeats, but also your heart uh, like plays like a tabla sometimes. It's just a, it could be potentially dangerous, especially for older people because it can lead to a stroke, mm. uh, blood clots. So usually what happened to me is I've had it kind of my whole life. It happens once a year or it could happen two to three times a year, but I could see myself fainting and I kind of sit back and I breathe and I get okay. When I did faint before, my heart resets. Like I faint and then like that itself was a reset button and everything yeah. calmed down. This time I woke up, no reset. So I'm sitting there drenched in sweat on my back, yeah. not doing any exercise with my heart rate 230. Just think about it. What does that do to a system? They take me to the hospital across the street. Thank God, Washington Hospital is across the street. My heart rate just does not get reduced. Medicine after medicine, it does not get reduced. They have to defibrillate me three times called cardioversion. Cardioversion also helps reset the heart. Three yeah. times. Yeah. Doesn't happen. Pulmonary edema. Congestive heart feel, oh my failure. Gosh. Yeah, yeah. It's bad. All of it. All of it. And then, and, you, and then when all the nurses and doctors are staring at you with, their eyes like concerned with their mouth agape, you know you're in a bad situation. But you also feel it. You know, like you have a sixth sense. If anyone's been through a near-death experience, mm -hmm. the best way I can explain it is you don't need a doctor's analysis. You don't need a medical degree. You just know. You know your time's up. Uh, that's the best way I can explain it. That's how you felt. Yeah. And talking to people who've been through this before, it's, it's a very similar journey. Is first, shamefully, you always ask for more time, whether you believe in God or not. You ask for more time. You do a bartering system. I'll do this. I'll do my fudger prayers. Uh, I'll give more to charity. The second thing is, once you realize time is running out, you do an audit of your life. Mm. Like, you know, people say your life flashes before your eyes. Kind of. But it's mm. like an audit. Mm -hmm. And so I did an audit of my life. Mm -hmm. And then I thought, I actually had a good life. And then I thought about regrets. And like, I didn't have much. But it was so interesting is that I can tell you with certainty the 99 problems that my minds were my mind was fixated on on that day not a single one came to head uh, during those final moments meaning everything that was I thought was important to me that day nothing it's almost like you regret what you cared about or yeah or like, right, that, like it wasn't important or you forget the stuff that was important to you in those yeah. in those moments yeah, yeah yeah and and the only regret that I had was I'm like you know I'm going to die alone I should have invested in a family I, that that was my only regret. I was like, ah, that was a mistake with Chad. It wasn't even like it was painful. It was just like, you know, like you. I wish I had. Yeah, I I, I made that one misstep. Ah, it's like ah, oh, I should have gone back on the test and written that. Uh, oh, it's okay. But then you know, this is the power of faith, and I shared this on the stage. You know, you were there a couple of weeks ago. Is uh, yeah. is uh, if you believe in God, you know, I felt in a strange way. I felt like very at peace. I just felt like, okay, Allah, you know, you gave me a good life. I tried my best. I made mistakes. Please forgive me. And I'm ready. That's fine. And so to even have that faith or that delusion that you'll be accepted, or there'll be something there to catch you, even if that's a delusion, I can tell you in those final moments, it makes the passing that much more easy. And so I was ready to go. And then alhamdulillah at that moment, my heart rate stabilized. And then, oh my gosh. yeah, yeah, I swear to God, my heart rate stabilized. Uh, this this lead doctor came in and, and and gave another version of the medication, and that finally did it. Oh my God. Even though they had tried it before many times. And so I thought that was a sign. And you can't go through that type of experience without 
it's changing your life. And it doesn't necessarily happen through an anagnosis or a massive epiphany. It's these small little epiphanies that gradually accumulate into a force of change. That's what happens. Transformative. Yeah, yeah. 100%. And so and to within a year, I said, I'm going to expose myself to risk and I'll go on these things called dates again. You know, because I was just so busy. I was so poor. I was so, working so hard. And you know how it is. I was like, I, my life is chaos. I have to be responsible. I'm the only child. How can I How can I date and marry someone when I have like no money and like I'm struggling? You know how it is. Of course. You like, you see block yourself. Uh, and, you know, and so, and you're like, there's no one who would invest in me. Why would they invest in me? And even if they did invest in me, what type of an asshole am I to like, you know, lead this woman on this journey towards chaos? My life's been chaos. But I exposed myself to that risk and within a year, I ended up marrying Sarah. We, like, we eloped. And then Sarah said, I wanted to have kids. And I said, okay, Bismillah, let's have kids. And we had Ibrahim. Oh my gosh, And then amazing. Ibrahim's five. And then we had Nuseba, she's three. Amazing. And, and I thought to myself, this I used to call it the Ali curse. You know, every, every eight years, uh, like growing up, like our lives got flattened. Mm-hmm. Just my entire life has been high highs, low lows. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like even the freakish near death experience, like you know, I I used to, I just contextualized it as the Ali curse. We had we use stories to make mm-hmm. sense of the chaos in our world. So do I. So I always imagine this. I'm out running an avalanche, and every couple of years the avalanche catches up with me and flans me, but it doesn't kill me. And my hand comes out from the ground and I live. And so that was my fear of getting married, right? And then, so we get married and we have Ibrahim mm. and we have Nuseba. And I'm like, for the first time in my life in many years, I'm like, maybe I, I, I beat the curse. Yeah. Maybe the curse didn't get passed on. And so when I was in that hotel and I heard that, that was my first reaction. I couldn't help About it. your daughter. Yeah. From your wife. I said the Ali curse. And my wife's like, it's no curse. I'm like, it's the Ali curse. And I just slammed my hand against uh, a pillow. Just angry. A little bit angry. I'm like, God, I mean, like, I, I, I try to keep my emotions under control, but I'm like, God damn it. And like, boom, on the, on the pillow. And then I was just like, boom again. And I didn't cry, I didn't wail. I was just like, I had my fist just curled with anger and rage. Not at God, not at the heavens, but I felt a sense of, I did this. The curse transferred to my daughter, right? Um, that's, oh my God. Yeah, and so, and so, and then my wife's like, no, it's not that. It's chismat, it's fate, blah, blah, blah. And so what happens when you're a father, to answer your question succinctly now, as, as I've gone through this journey, is the near-death experience, you make your negotiation with God. When your kid goes through it, you make your negotiation with God. And this is the negotiation you make. Mm-hmm. My life for hers. Trade. Oh, my gosh. Simple trade. And you say it very calmly. This is easy, Allah. My life for hers. What do you want? You want my life? Done. And so that was the first prayer. That was the, the consistent prayer uh, throughout this journey. Like you just like, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, listen, anything I've done in my life, anything good I've done in life, trade, barter. But you know, even as you make this prayer, it's not how it works. Oh, gosh. You know? And so what I did is every day, this is why I couldn't sleep at night for months. I just had to imagine the story ending with tragedy. I had to prepare myself. And my wife and I, in this regards, are we're very lucky that we were very even keeled. My wife is super spiritually, emotionally strong. We, we, we took it head on. We're like, mm-hmm. it is a very strong possibility. Nuseba does not make it. Mm-hmm. We have to stay strong. We have to stay level. We cannot blame God. We cannot get into the waswasas and the whispers. Mm-hmm. As soon as you get your foot into that quicksand, you drown. Why me? Why us? Why, Why God? Right. 
well, I did everything right. There's no answer to it. You drown. It's shaitan, man. It's the, it literally, it will, it crushes people. Yeah. And so I knew that. And thankfully my wife and I never, ever, 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 ever dipped our foot into that quicksand. Oh my gosh. You guys are so strong. No, because it's death. It's de- you, you die. Because there's no answer. It's, it's, it's cosmic injustice for a two-year-old girl to get stage four liver cancer. There's, like, oh, it's God's purpose. What's God's purpose in that? You know when Muslims say that? There's a plan. What the F's the plan? Um, so every, right. yeah, every night That's I just right. sat there and I had to imagine every scenario because it was the only way for me to emotionally, mentally prepare. You were priming yourself just I, in case. I, every day I prime myself. Every day. Every narrative. And then it finally came to the point where I told Sarah, I said, you know, I've been through a lot in life. It's fine. But like if Nuseba dies, like there'll be a part of me that like I'll be, I'll be broken. And I'm just telling you, like there'll be a hole in me that'll never recover. I'm a good actor for sake of Ibu and our family. I'll just perform for the rest of my life just to, just to be a good dad. But I don't know if I can ever recover from this. And it ties back to my fear that like I was in, in a part responsible. But the fact also is, the Ali story, the way it goes, is we always get to the edge of the cliff, we get pushed off, and we're hurtling down towards destruction, and somehow we're caught. So I said, if this story has that arc and that mm-hmm. plot twist, inshallah, Nusebo will heal. And so that was the hope also. And so when these plot twists happened, which they did, all of a sudden, random anonymous liver donor right after the other liver donor falls apart and like we're afraid if she's gonna live or die i'm like ah the ugly story and so lo and behold alhamdulillah she's alive and we did not have to imagine the 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 situation Gosh. where she died you asked me a simple question and i gave you a, a very nuanced response and i appreciate that <laughs> an arc um, of a father no Waj, i think that's great i think you're really blessed i think you're really lucky you and your wife uh, are amazing people and well you know what you know you know your story demonstrates to me two things actually one is that uh, we are stronger than the thing that's trying to defeat us if we believe it. And that's Nunu, and Nunu in the background agrees. <laughs> <laughs> and secondly, uh, the purpose of life is to make life and to celebrate it whenever we can. I yeah, sincerely believe yeah, that. Yeah, the per- I mean, if you're lucky in life, you will be loved and you will find the capacity to love someone else. Mm-hmm. You know, And if yeah. you can find love and give love, on this journey called life, which is so hard for so many people. And if you can find joy, despite all the pain and trauma, that's a victory. And that's why, you know, when people say resistance, it's very powerful, but resistance is also very exhausting, man. Mm. Like resistance is painful. And, and sometimes, re- you know, joy is resistance. Just ha- sheer joy. To have joy in the face of adversity and hate and pain and racism, to smile and to, to, to find these moments of, humor and levity and and celebration yeah that's that's strength and that's power and that's faith and that's gratitude and i think i think joy that's what we don't tell our people enough that joy in itself uh, is an act of prayer and an act of resistance oh i love that yeah okay wash uh this is the point of conversation where i'd like to ask you a few rapid questions do it rapid fire do it. Okay, so first thing that comes to your mind is kind of like that. Bismillah, let's do it. Let's do it, sir. What is one song that you know all the lyrics to? Ooh, one song that I know, uh, Salt and Pepper, uh, Push It. 
Love it. (laughs) (laughs) Ooh, baby, baby. Ooh, baby, baby. You know, I love the fact that you actually admit that. That's fantastic. Okay. (laughs) Second, uh, what would you want your last meal to be? Ooh, that's a very good question. Um, I would like my mother's homemade biryani. Mm. Uh, I would like a homemade chai, Mm. some water. And uh, I'll be okay to go off on that. That's wonderful. Yeah. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? Suffering is seasoning. And this will all make you a better person. And you'll survive. Yeah. Sincerely, what doesn't actually kill you does make you stronger. Yeah, it, it, can, it can weaken you. It, no, let me put it this way. It'll leave you scars. It'll leave you bruised. You will have pain. It'll mess you up. Mm. Uh, you will have to unpack it but you will actually be alive. You think you'll be dead, you'll be alive. And and you'll and you'll find someone who actually believes in you and invests in you. Yeah. Uh and and this is all seasoning. That's wonderful, man. Okay. If you had one superpower, what would it be? Yeah, it's so annoying because it's so cliched. Mm. Flight, of course. Be awesome. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um let's see. What time period would you like to spend one day in and why? I would love to spend time 610, right when the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, announced, if you will, his prophecy. Because I want to see how I would respond. Uh, In that moment? Yeah. Oh, that's curious. That's great. Okay. Last question, sir. What's your message for the world? Oh, man. My message for the world is life is unpredictable, cruel, and often short. We are only promised today if we're lucky. Enjoy yourself. Be loved and love. Mm -hmm. In the end, that's all that matters. That's the truth. Waj, I sincerely appreciate your perspective, your sense of humor, and your tenderness, man. Thank you so much. And... uh, Keep fighting the good fight. Thank, thank you, you. And thank you for recording my crazy children in the background. I love it's it. It's a pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> so Take thank care. You. So like if you like what you've heard, please subscribe and leave a review. You can also email me with feedback at storiesoftransformationpodcast at gmail.com. You can also join the conversation and find others like you by following us on Instagram at stories underscore of underscore transformation and on Facebook, Stories Transformation. You can find all this information on my website as well, www.baktashahadi.com. That's B-A-K-T-A-S-H-A-H-A-D-I.com. <laughs>